0: So, welcome to the postscripts.
1: The post of the script.
0: Yeah. P.S.
1: We are not prescript. No. This is not a prescription. <laughs> no. This is a postscript.
0: <laughs> prescription for your health.
1: For Your Health by for Steve Brule. By Cinco.
0: Yeah,
1: Cinco Health. So, uh, have you had any interesting experiences lately, Thomas, that uh, you want to share?
0: Yeah, well, uh, you know, um, we built saw Lighthouse recently. Yes, we did. That's, I feel like that's a film tailor-made for me in a
1: lot of ways. I, I gotta say the same. It's <laughs> nearly like, I've been incredibly hyped since learning about the project, mm. like since, since day one of learning about it. Mm. And really, I was afraid it would not match up to my expectations. Yeah,
0: there's always a danger. Specifically when you know what it's going to be, more or less, and you're interested, but, you know, it's it's hyped. You never really know. Sometimes yeah. it lets you down. Yeah, right. And then
1: then you watch it, and it still manages to surprise you and mm-hmm. really impress you and just yeah. be just so delightful this movie is like it's probably one of my one of my favorite movies i've seen ever it's Mm. it's so like the way it's shot Mm. the sound design the script is so beautiful and poetic and still funny like this is robert eggers second movie yeah and it's so different from his first Mm. even Mm. though there's a lot of similarities Mm. Mm. but i think one of the things about the lighthouse which i didn't expect so much was that it was so funny
0: yeah yeah it's really funny Willem Dafoe is just does such an amazing part in this movie. He's perfect, and I I really—I mean—he's a great actor. He can do like naturalistic roles really well, but when you give him like a heightened speech and acting, there's so much meat
1: there for him to work with. So wonderful to look at, and the interplay between him and Robert Pattinson is so brilliant and also so funny. Yeah, like in a lot of ways, it has a sort of. um, Because of the claustrophobia and the smallness of the set and stuff, in in a lot of ways, I can imagine it working well as almost just black box theater because it's so well written Mm. and so well played. Mm. But at the same time, you have this beautiful dimension of the set
0: and the lighting, Mm. the lenses they've used for the cameras... Yeah, because they've used these old-style 1920s lenses and 1930s Yeah, mainly lenses. they used yeah. a lens from
1: 1930, I think, mm. but then they have some even older and mm. weirder lenses yeah. they've used, and some they really use, beautiful stuff. And uh, they use,
0: like, film stock that hasn't been changed since the 1950s. It, uh, yeah, they
1: use some black-and-white uh, Kodak mm. stock, and mm. the lens they mainly use for nearly all the movie. Yeah well the filter they use they filter out all the red light so everything red in the faces are thrown into stark contrast yeah. so you see all this all this horrific detail yeah. in the yeah. faces yeah. it looks so good like, yeah. and the and the way it's framed and stuff yeah, like yeah, the yeah. cinematography it's beautiful uh, it's so competently made, like in every aspect.
0: And it's kind of, it has all these bunch of references. It feels very Edgar Allan Poe, it has uh, this Lovecraft, but also Ingmar Bergman and, and a lot you of know Greek, this Melville, Greek yeah. Greek uh, mythology yeah, this and Roman tragedy. Neptune and uh, Icarus. Like these seafaring uh, superstitions and. Yeah all these kind of mixed together so rich it has horror elements and like some plays around with like psychological is is it real or was it imaginary and um, it's very playful and very sort of exciting and um,
1: right like, like I discussed it earlier um, when we were talking about Goodnight Mommy the mm. Austrian movie which also has some of those elements but in this movie it's just so rich the way you can mm. either interpret mm. stuff as being mm. symbolic uh, literal horrific, you know, sort of monster movie way almost. Yep. Uh, there's so many ways you can deal with it, but it never feels too highbrow, mm. even though there's like this Shakespearean language. Like, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. The language is so beautiful. Oh, it's I mean, so great. Uh, Robert Eggers was amazing in The Witch, uh, yep. in which most of the dialogue was taken directly from uh, witch trial documents mm. and stuff mm. from the period from the 1600s. Which lent the language this ver- veracity. That's one of the reasons I really love Robert Eggers, is mm. his attention to period detail yeah. is so precise.
0: And specifically language, I think. Yeah, It's one of his absolute strengths.
1: And in this movie, he did so much research yeah. in terms of finding the correct language and correct dialects, like Robert Pattinson's character has this uh, ancient Maine dialect that yeah. sounds really weird. yeah. And, uh, of course, Willem Dafoe, as Thomas Wake, has this amazing old salt Atlantic uh, sailor dialect. And it's really, really well done.
0: And it's just so delightful to listen to. So Rich He uses a lot of these superstitious terms and references to myths. Specifically, Willem Dafoe has this kind of rant. He's kind of monologue. Oh yes. There's uh, several
1: rants, but there's one yeah, in particular. Yeah. They're discussing his cooking.
0: Yeah, Robert Pattinson is he won't admit that he loves his lobster, no, says, and this yeah. kind of sets him off, <laughs> yeah. and this maddening like "Hark, Neptune, and curse upon you" type yeah. crazed. Yeah. Uh, it's this
1: long soliloquy yeah. of like curses, and it feels very like a Greek tragedy, yeah. or like it's, it's yeah. amazing.
0: And the camera's filmed from below in his face. The lights going direct up. Oh, you can see yeah. the veins. Yeah. and his eyes are just going crazy. And his
1: yeah. oh, it's so. Uh, uh, and then at the end, you have Robert Patterson's character again, you know, like. Uh, okay, have it your way. <laughs> yeah, I like your cooking. <laughs> yeah, and it's so funny. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's that's a beautiful thing about the lighthouse. It brings mm. all these sort of high-flowing, mm. like um, really like uh, serpentine language, mm. but it also mixes it in with all these sort of low-brow, funny, mm. very humoristic, mm. and very uh, down-to-earth moments yeah. in a way that's virtuistic. It's so well done. Uh, yeah, the balance is perfect.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the relationship between them is also really nice. It starts off strained, then they kind of become, like, buddies. They're quite close. They almost kiss at one point. Yeah, like it. And then they start fighting and they become, like, the most hateful enemies. Well, it's excellent because they're supposed to be there for four weeks. Yeah.
1: And then uh, Robert Pattinson's character has to leave, right? And for those four weeks, he refuses to drink alcohol. Like, yeah. it's a uh, real, like, important point in the mm. beginning. And they one uh, of the reasons they don't get along and mm. stuff. But then, of course, the boat uh, to pick him up never arrives. Yeah,
0: uh, be- and maybe because he murdered a seagull. A
1: seagull. There's this superstition that yeah. seagulls are like the souls of dead sailors and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and this storm arrives, which makes it impossible for the boat mm. to come. And for the rest of the movie, there is just a storm. It devolves into this maniacal, bizarre, drunken mm. sort of uh, madness mm. that is so, it's so cool. Mm. Also, the sound design... Yeah, it's it's, great. It's It's interesting. Like the way they shot it was a lot of it was on location in uh, Nova Scotia weather to love the scenes with the extreme weather are like that's actual weather them like standing sideways and and, like blowing in the wind and it looks so good
0: and there's several anecdotes where the actors feel like they want to punch the director but (laughs) just holding back right
1: i've seen a couple of interviews with willem defoe and he was like well the nice thing about the weather is you don't have to act too much you just (laughs) sort of have to react (laughs) to it and that's all very real like the way the the physical acting Mm. there because that's just how you react yeah because these roles
0: are very physical yeah, and he also said
1: like, yeah, of course it was like a brutal experience and super unpleasant, but also fun because they were making something really cool mm. and good. So so it seems like they really enjoyed the experience in hindsight. Mm. Um, yeah. And they also have very different approaches to to the acting.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the films comes from like a avant garde background, where a lot of um, theatre. Yeah, he's spoken about working with green screen. Uh, he doesn't in this film, but in other films like Spider Man and stuff. That for him that felt really natural because it's like his avant-garde background where you would imagine the other parts. Right uh, it's, it's a
1: sort, sort of black box theater yeah. almost which is cool because I remember we talked about Ian McKellen mm. in The Hobbit mm. and where he had a nervous breakdown from all the green screen acting and not being <laughs> yeah. allowed to interact with characters yeah. and he also has a theater background yeah, yeah. but a different theater Very background different, so it's yeah. interesting to see yeah. the sort of different effects it can have on different mm. actors and their backgrounds um, And this kind
0: of expressive acting really is so natural to him. I guess that's why he often does villains and stuff. Um, Robert Pattinson is your your classical film actor. He's kind of a young star, did these Twilight films. Yeah, good looking. Yeah, and he likes to, you know, be in the moment. He doesn't want to rehearse too much because he's afraid of losing a bit of the tension. So whilst Willem Dafoe likes to rehearse a lot, so he's extremely well prepared. So they have kind of different approaches and that also feeds into the differences of the characters and...
1: Uh, hearing interviews with them and stuff talking about the mm. movie like it's clear that they respect each other too yes yeah. so there's this difference between their approaches and mm. stuff that really feeds well into the mm. movie and mm. and makes it better but at the same time i think they both respect each mm. other and um yeah it's, it's so cool mm. um and robert pattinson's character is also like he's deceptively simple yeah. but it's not really there's so much under the surface mm. there he's also great in this mm. movie robert pattinson just the way he acts all the subtleties and it's clear that he has this sort of dark yeah. backstory that yeah. sort of bubbles up, yeah. like the he's guilty conscious mm. about uh, killing his workmate.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of this. Um, you know, it uses a lot of associative editing and stuff where he's kind of in the drunk haziness and you see just parts and it's it alludes to it nicely uh, without being too explicit and also there's a lot of situations where it's kind of ambivalent whether things happened or not. Yeah, and there's a lot of sort
1: of gaslighting. Mm. Uh, Thomas Wake, at one point he chases Ephraim Winslow with an axe and then later he's like, why did you chase me with an axe? Yeah, yeah.
0: He destroys the boat and then he claims that the other one did it and he just feels so crazed.
1: Yeah, but at the same time you're like, did he? Yeah, because <laughs> it's it's unclear yeah. whether or not Ephraim Winslow is sort of fantasizing mm. stuff and there's this scene with a mermaid yeah. for instance like, there's a lot of fantastical elements yeah, tentacles that, yeah, dreamlike dream like sequences mm. which also look amazing yeah. because the way it's framed and shot it's really and a- also the aspect ratio of like 1 to 119 or whatever is so yeah really square it, it works so mm. well in this movie mm. because it's supposed to feel both like period correct but also mm. it's supposed to feel like sort of claustrophobic and it really yeah. serves the movie yeah. a lot of times when people use this weird aspect ratios sometimes i feel like it's sort of this hipster mentality or whatever it's done because you can do it not necessarily because it serves the movie but in this in this case all the creative decisions about how this project was put together just works so well. There's this real synergy of all the elements.
0: Mm. Uh, there are some matches because, I mean, the, the lighthouse is the central motif, and that's kind of a vertical thing, yeah. so having a bit more of a vertical fits. And uh, apparently, as far as I understand it, the ideal way to watch the lighthouse is an IMAX theatre because that gives you the width and the height in a, the best way. As far as I saw, there was only one screening in Oslo and I didn't get to go to that one no which is a shame because that would probably be great
1: yeah it deserves to be watched uh, in the best way possible Um, there's so many good things to say about the the movie the sound as you said the sound design is super interesting because there's one thing that I'm amazed that they managed to Mm. make work Mm. there's this foghorn throughout the movie Yeah, yeah The sound designer talked about it the way he needed to make it pervasive throughout the movie Mm. and create this tension and annoyance, but yet not make it so that you wanted to leave the
0: theater. Yeah, it's hypnotic, rearing you in. It's hypnotic, and
1: it's a real foghorn that's been sort of tweaked a bit. Mm. And just the pacing of Mm. those foghorn sounds is incredibly well done. And also the line between the score, the music and the sound design Mm. is often quite blurry. Mm. So there's oftentimes there's like these interesting sounds and you're not Mm. sure if it's supposed to be music Mm. or sort of diegetic sounds it works super well mm. to create this dream-like... Like you're not sure what's real and what's not. It serves the movie real well.
0: And it's almost as if you can hear it after you've finished watching the film. It kind of hangs over you. It
1: has oh. this real personality, this yeah. movie. It has this real identity. Mm. And Like I say, you can sort of conjure it up in your mind. It's this combination of the sound design and the, and the look of the movie and the acting and the sort of weird soliloquies and...
0: There's another movie that's a really nice companion piece to this, which also came up about, at least in Norway, around about the same time. And it's, um, it's a female director, primarily about two female characters. It's called A Portrait of a Woman on Fire.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've been meaning to watch it. I just haven't seen it yet. Yeah,
0: it's really beautiful. And it's about like an Enlightenment-era portrait artist who comes to this... I'm not sure if it's an island, but she comes with a rowing boat... Her mission is to paint a portrait of a young woman who's to be married off. But she doesn't want to marry, so she has to kind of do the um, portraiture in secret. She's follows her around on the island, just going for walks, just as a companion, covertly looking at her and in secret when she's alone, drawing sketches and painting. And the relationship between them develops. And, you know, it's very different from The Lighthouse, it has more of a sensual quality. Very beautiful, but in a completely different way. And there are other characters as well that play in. But as a companion piece, looking at these two against each other, both, I really like them. It's difficult for me to say one or the other I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Celine Shima the uh, director she's yeah, done yeah. Um, girlhood and tomboy and water lilies before all really great she's one of the few uh like, top notch directors who hasn't <laughs> failed me yet <laughs> uh, and and this difficult to say whether or not it's her best it's it's her uh, most ambitious at least for now i can't wait to
1: see it actually yeah it looks super interesting it's
0: beautiful one of the things it does actually really well and some other films have done an okay job i think but the way it portrays the act of painting i think they found the hand model the person who does the actual painting you just see the hand i think they found uh, this person on instagram so a a woman painter who did this kind of era painting and they they found her there and then just hired her and It's like, you know, how you prepare. You have your canvas and you just um, water it down with some... Yeah, you prep the... Yeah. Just show those elements, those very basic things and the actual painting of... It's a really nice touch.
1: That's cool because often uh, movies, when they portray painting, Mm. it's always sort of... uh, Well, it can often feel sort of uh, like you know they're not really painting or you sort of... Yeah, you
0: see the actor putting on the finishing touch. Yeah, like one little (laughs) dab of paint. It's
1: always like that. So yeah, that's, that's cool. It's like when we talked about video games. Mm. So it's always like not quite believable. Mm. I like that it do that. That's a good sign. Mm. But yeah, we were talking about also um, directors that never fail you. Mm. And I, I just, so nice to be sort of wrapped up in the pleasure yeah. of expecting good movies mm. and watching good movies and having your sort of feelings validated. Mm. It's always so nice because there's so much garbage out
0: there. Mm. But you also have these directors, you know, they've had long careers and you know some films you like better than others but they're interesting both in context and there's always something to talk about yeah. i think you could say last one i mean none of his films that i actively dislike but some i like a lot more than others but all his films are very interesting in context with his artistry i, I totally
1: agree like there's at least one movie of his i don't like but even that one i can find interesting to discuss so Wh-
0: which one is that uh, dancer in the dark Oh, you don't like it? No, I don't like that
1: movie. <laughs> but I do find it interesting to yeah. talk about. But yeah, I like him. There's definite value in artists who have a project and whether or not they succeed always is not necessarily important mm-hmm. because a lot of good art is made by taking a chance on something that might not work. Mm. So again, with that in mind, it's interesting to have these few few directors who seem to hit it on the nail, the nail so on the head no every perfect. time. No perfect. Yeah. yeah.
0: And yeah, uh, like uh, a... Paul Thomas Anderson, I, I think you could say that about. Yeah. I've I haven't seen his first s- film. That has to be said, though.
1: I have not seen anything bad from him.
0: Some I've seen some
1: stuff from him that I can imagine other people not being so interested in.
0: Yeah. Which specifically are thinking about? So. The Master, for instance. Yeah. I mean, it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. I agree. And
1: uh, Joaquin Phoenix is great in yeah, it. Yeah, he's so um, good.
0: But I can imagine
1: some people would find it a bit difficult. And did, he directed Inherent Vice, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And that's also a movie I can picture uh, some people finding a bit long and complex. And, yeah. Uh, but I find it super enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. I just find it fascinating and colorful and, and rich. You
0: know, actually, it's interesting this uh, Jackman Phoenix role in The Master has some parallel to, not narratively or thematically, but acting style to the Willem Dafoe uh, character in Lighthouse. It's so expressive and so playful and kind of yeah. borderline crazy, but not too much, uh, really enjoyable. It's just lovely to watch.
1: Yeah, both in Phoenix and uh, Willem Dafoe have this amazing range, but also have this ability to go over the top mm. without it feeling like you're chewing the scenery. Yeah. For instance, Willem Dafoe in uh, Florida Project uh, is such a contrast to, for instance, The Lighthouse. But both are just so, so well acted, those roles. And Wakin Phoenix, too, has a lot more muted Mm. roles in some movies. And then he does stuff like, you know, The Joker, Mm. which I found sort of predictable as a movie. And it was all right. But he did
0: a great part in it. it. He's amazing in that role. yeah, yeah.
1: He won an Oscar for that role, didn't he?
0: Yeah, he did, yeah. I mean, it may not be my favourite of his roles, but... He's deserving
1: I, of an Oscar. He, he's in some definitely, capacity. yeah. I'm not On unhappy
0: about him getting for that one. No, uh,
1: and I don't think that movie should have won any Oscars apart from his performance. No, um, Did it? No, oh. that was the only... Because Parasite won so yeah. much, and yeah. that was, for us uh, Korean New Wave fans, yeah. was such a pleasant experience. Mm. Really worthy of the Oscar, yeah. I think... I just found it strange because I've enjoyed so much Korean New Wave mm, movies mm. Uh, over the years and to see it finally recognised feels yeah. like almost out of the blue.
0: It's not necessarily my absolute favourite of the South Korean films of the last two decades, but it is extremely good and it's, I mean, it's got the can win, it's got the Oscar, it's got a lot of Golden Globes and... Um, The kind of praise it's gotten—it's over the moon, and it feels a bit like uh, an embrace of what's been happening in Korean cinema for so long. There's so much good stuff, right? Which is why I found it almost sort of bizarre Mm. Mm.
1: that it got all the accolades and reception it did. Mm. Because like, where have you been?
0: There's (laughs) this shit has been going on for years and years. But it has to said, this film is so finely crafted the nuances in like just the things between the lower class characters living almost underground yeah. <laughs> and when the weather breaks out they're kind of devastating but the rich people they're living on a hill and so the weather doesn't really hurt them yeah, so much it
1: works metaphorically and it uh, works uh, just as a tale yeah. and, it, and the
0: flow and the rhythm is, and
1: also the twists and turns yeah. and the cinematography of yeah. course
0: the cast is amazing and how it mixes humour with like really uncomfortable tension
1: oh yeah and the way it's sort of hard to pin down genre wise which is very typical of good korean movies Mm. uh, which tend to even when they do genre movies there's this sense of not wanting to be pinned down Mm. or constrained by genre framing
0: they kind of learned lessons from american cinema but applying it in their own way yeah
1: right like they take a lot of what's good about hollywood cinema and apply it in a way that feels fresh Mm. like The way Koreans do thrillers Mm. is so refreshing from watching American thrillers Mm. because the pacing and like the dynamics and like everything is so predictable always in American thrillers. Well, not always, but you know what I mean. Mm. Like there's a trend there. But in Korean thriller movie making, it always feels like they're making thrillers not to make a thriller but to tell an exciting
0: story. They have an offbeat element, which often makes them kind of unpredictable. You can't quite place where it's and there's going. There's often a
1: lot of humor in Korean, both horror mm. and thrillers. They seem to have this... Yeah, like you say, there's a certain offbeat quality
0: mm. to it. A really good example of this is uh, a film we both really enjoy called The Chaser. Yeah, 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 By Hong Jin Na, which, you know, it's a crime film. Yeah, but, it's and, a thriller. And it has this noir framework with, like, a former cop. But in this case, he's a pimp. And some of his girls have gone missing, and he's... He's so sure that another pimp has been taking his girls and he's really angry at this uh, <laughs> other pimp. So his his interest is to find this other pimp and get his girls back. He doesn't have any idea that they're being murdered or anything. He just wants to find them and get them back so his business will get going. Right. And, you know, 20 minutes into the film, not only do we know who did the murdering, he's sitting in the middle of the police station and saying, I did it. <laughs> yeah. And what follows is like an array of police incompetence where they're just fumbling over each other they don't understand anything and then this other this pimp former cop is kind of solving the murder and it's just where it goes and it's so funny and intense and um
1: yeah that's an amazing movie that's one of the best Korean thrillers yeah. uh, among a lot of among movies, a lot yeah, so, yeah. I think uh, Hong jin has done... We talked about directors that not necessarily always make perfect movies, but whose movies always are interesting, and he's definitely one of them.
0: Yeah, he's only made three so far, and The Wailing also was amazing.
1: The Wailing is... I thought that was perfect. He made The Yellow Sea, which is not a perfect movie, in my opinion, but is it's well good. worth watching.
0: Yeah. So I'm very curious to see what he does next.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. He's a fascinating director. I think The Wailing is probably the best one he's done so far. Mm -hmm. So I'm only expecting good stuff from here. Like The Wailing is so... That's a movie that could not have been American, for instance. Really? And it it could not have been European either. It's so tied to Korean Mm. myth. And folklore Mm. and sort of divination. And And tonally, it's its own thing. And it's so fascinating because it's such a multifaceted movie. Mm. And again, we were talking about sort of not knowing quite what's going on, sort of dreamlike aspects Mm. and losing your thread and sort of being confused in a sort of um interesting way mm-hmm. and the whaling does that super well
0: yeah because it's kind of like a zombie movie
1: yeah and the zombie <laughs> elements
0: are sort of funny too yeah. right
1: there's some funny elements there and there's some really like yeah. uh unsettling mm-hmm. stuff like it's a horror movie that can be quite unsettling mm-hmm. and, and there's a lot of it...
0: incompetence <laughs> yeah again again with the
1: characters but, well there's a lot of korean cinema that really critiques south korean society yeah uh, that's a
0: healthy sign.
1: Yeah, that's a healthy sign, but it's also interesting because it's been so frowned upon. Mm. And a lot of Korean directors have faced consequences because of it and have been blacklisted and stuff.
0: Oh, like really? uh, a contemporary.
1: Yeah. Uh, what's he called again? Uh, Chanwoo Park. He was blacklisted because of his what? movies and stuff. Really? Yeah. And he's like the top dog, yeah, <laughs> almost, yeah. right? Because of criticizing the current government or whatever mm-hmm. uh, before she was jailed or had to resign, I don't recall.
0: Yeah, Because um, he did The Handmaiden last. Yeah. That was very good.
1: I haven't seen it yet, but I, I've heard it's excellent.
0: Yeah, it's different tonally than, say, the Vengeance trilogy and stuff. Um, I should hope so. It's quite sensuous in a way. And it's also a thriller and, you know, does its own thing. It's very good. Amazing director, yeah. too. Well,
1: I'm so happy that Korean cinema is finally getting some uh, international recognition. Yeah. And uh, I mean, they've had it for a
0: while, but s- now they're specifically in American, the mainstream specifically now. Specifically, they're...
1: American recognition, yeah. uh, and it's rare too. It's mm. the first foreign movie to ever win Best Movie. Yeah, super, super happy about that. Yeah, um, and I just I can't wait to see what's next because probably there's going to be a lot more Korean movies funded now, and uh, yeah. you can just assume they're they're. Just itching to make or a lot more. Or even
0: just distribute it. Yeah. You know, like a lot of good stuff that might not have come our way. I'm interested to see, I haven't seen so much, let's say, traditional older South Korean films. When um, Japanese cinema, which is kind of a sibling uh, tradition, I've seen a lot more both contemporary and older stuff. It's kind yeah, of yeah, but, but but I feel
1: like older Japanese cinema has been a lot more recognized in the yeah. mainstream Western culture, like uh, Kurosawa. Yeah and, yeah,
0: and like Japanese art, there's a strong tradition of exchanging ideas and and visual concepts between yeah, like, like the like Japanese o- and the European. Um, for
1: sure, for sure. Like ever since they opened up the country again, in the in the nineteenth century, mm. in a way that hasn't really been the same case with. Korean culture. Mm. Of course, it's a small country. Mm. But, but yeah, I'm happy that that's sort of opening up now. Mm. I also want to watch more older Korean cinema. I have a list of movies I'm meaning to watch.
0: Yeah, nice. Um, yeah, that's good shit. Mm. Actually, I was... Uh, I started playing um, a game, uh, a French-made game called *A Plague Tale Innocence. And Sometimes these games, they just have another you know,
1: titles. That sounds like a mobile game. Yeah,
0: it's, it's really not... <laughs> You play as a, a young girl, she's a teenager, her name is Amicia, and she's kind of the custodian of a younger brother whom she hasn't really known, he's suffering from some sort of illness.
1: What sort of game is it?
0: Well, it's kind of like a third person... It's kind of on the rails in the sense that you, you go from one situation to, to the next. There's a plague going on with all these rats.
1: So There's sort of a... Uh, um, um, a linear uh, narrative.
0: Yeah, it's a very narrative game. It has some crafting elements. It's The gameplay is really tight, actually. It feels better than I thought it would. It's more like from, like, a reluctant to say art house. Because, I mean... The, uh, Indie. Yeah, well, it's high, it, It's really high production value. Like, yeah. it looks beautiful, like, the, the way it portrays weather and architecture and costume. It all feels really sort of era-accurate, like, 14th century, I think. Right.
1: But it's a bit more on maybe the, the highbrow gaming, indie
0: gaming. Yeah. Like,
1: like Braid and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. But a higher production value again there. Yeah. And uh, the voice acting. You know, the thing is, you can put on the French voice acting and use English subtitles, and uh, that works really well. Yeah. It's kind of like Sekiro uh, uh, from last year. Yeah, yeah. We put on the um, Japanese uh, voiceover.
1: Which is necessary in that game.
0: Well, you know. It's not something that I've really done much before, but with these two games, and especially the voice acting is so good in French. It's not bad in English, but it's really well done.
1: Right. Uh, in Sekiro, it's such a quintessentially Japanese yeah. game that I imagine it would be sort of weird mm. to watch it, yeah. to play it with uh, English.
0: And it's, it's the audio. same pair. It feels very... French. Right. Um, Frenchified. And there's like an, an emotional core that's very strong. I mean, you, you, a lot of the time you're taking care of your younger brother who's quite helpless and you're holding his hand. And, you know, in a lot of games... this That's kind horrible. Of, uh, <laughs> in a lot of games, this kind of uh, hand-holding escort mission, it has a bad rep.
1: Yeah, it's but often I think because it's implemented so badly yeah. and your companion yeah.
0: like dies. Uh, like yeah, yeah, you're shit. frustrated yeah. because of bad gameplay yeah, basically. Right. Here it works really well and the emotional core... You know, it has kind of some of these elements of, let's say, base building. It it kind of touches on a lot of different genres. You know, almost a little bit of the old Tomb Raider, a bit of the Uncharted kind of stuff. Right, right. But like very narrative and beautiful. So the story is the story good like. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's pretty good. Yeah. And mostly because the characters are really good. The setups. It's kind of like it has like a supernatural element about the plague. Yeah. which I'm not sure they necessarily need to do that, but that's like a game industry trope, I guess. Yeah. That's uh, One of the things it was famous for when it came, I think this was also last year, was that um, it has loads and loads and loads of rats which are individually animated running around. Oh, yeah, right. I think I've uh, seen some gameplay footage of yeah, that, actually. And yeah. you can use like a, a torch because there's scared of light, and to just navigate through. And you have some of these puzzle elements where you have to figure out. It's never really very difficult, uh, but that's not the point. It's it's much more of an emotional and mood uh, game and surprisingly well-written and acted. Um, Nice. Is it long? No, uh, maybe eight hours. I'm not sure.
1: I feel like sometimes, like, longer, especially RPGs and stuff, can feel sort of daunting to begin.
0: Yeah, and also they tend to have, like, There's a lot of filler usually, like grinding gameplay. And especially Mm. like
1: collecting stuff. Like uh, you see it a lot in the sort of uh, nearly all open world Mm. RPGs, you see it. The map's just littered with all these icons. Mm -hmm. You sort of have Mm -hmm. to go fetch and find out whatever it is. Even The Witcher 3 had that. Yeah,
0: and often it doesn't feel so thematically relevant or gameplay. It might be okay. It It, might be something to do, but... It
1: feels often like a way to just inflate game time without actually adding any interesting gameplay.
0: Mm. You know, one of the games... It's not an open world game, but one of the games I I thought managed, let's say, filler really, really well. Because it was so thematically relevant and kind of filled out the world is uh, Batman Arkham Asylum. Yeah. Have you played that game? No, I have not. So it's kind of like a metroidvania. You control Batman as he's going through this uh, mental hospital, this island. And as you gather your tools or improve your tools, you can access new parts of the thing. And part of your exploration is finding these tablets of uh, like this old man rambling about creating Arkham Asylum. And a lot of other, because you have these puzzle elements where you, let's see, scan the environment or solve these puzzle things. And they give you interviews from like a joker being interviewed as a patient. Yeah. Or like information about, you know, these um, Easter eggs about other villains, not necessarily in this game or characters. Yeah. And it really fills out the universe in a really, really like beautiful lore. way. Yeah. It's like a, a really lore heavy, but it's it's tight. And there's not a lot of different locations but they changed uh, over the course of the game. So they're kind of evolving and kind of building, and it's right. it's very tightly made. And uh,
1: I like games where you have optional lore. Yeah. Like, I don't like... One problem I often find with games is there's too much exposition, yeah. and you want to say so much about the world and mm-hmm. the characters and stuff. And it, it's overwhelming, number one, and number two, it's often not very good. Mm. The prime example of that would be um, Planescape in the Monaro. So mm. like the wall of exposition in that game just made it impossible for me to continue mm. that game. It was just way too much. But then you yeah. have games like, uh, for instance, Skyrim, which is not the writing in that game is not amazing. No, but <laughs> I like how lore and little story bits are mm. like hidden all across the map yeah, and like kind the of a... documents and, uh, and like you can when you break into someone's house mm. and you like read their diary or yeah, you
0: can find a book. Yeah,
1: and you have the same in in older, more classic games like Thief and stuff mm. where you. Because it's optional, it feels more interesting.
0: Well, in Thief, it's really well implemented because it's more like you're sneaking about these old mansions and there's these soldiers just talking about the situation they're in and they're complaining about the boss or something. And maybe you find some notes and stuff as well. uh, So it
1: feels very natural that you're finding these lore tidbits and stuff. Also, it's in the context of the game, you often learn valuable information about the maps. And And it's
0: often quite funny. Like, I mean, the acting in that game isn't great. I mean, I like Garrett's voice, but it's really enjoyable.
1: Yeah. I know we discussed it previously, Mm. like sort of idiotic guards. Yeah. They're (laughs) just funny. Yeah. Like the way they don't understand what's going on. It's Mm. a bit the same in Skyrim, actually, when Mm. like you you shoot a guard in the eye and and it's like, what was that? Mm. Oh, must have been the wind.
0: There are a lot of memes about these Skyrim characters, like, I used to be strong like you, but then I took an arrow to the knee. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: that was a tired old meme. Um,
0: I'm sort of saddened that
1: Bethesda hasn't really released a proper game since Skyrim. Yeah. They released Fallout 76, which was a complete disaster. I'm not going to play it, I think. Like, everything about that game is just the exact opposite of what old Fallout fans mm. want from that
0: franchise. Apparently they are working on the next Elder Scrolls game.
1: Yeah, yeah, they are, they are. Hopefully that'll be... It's taking a long time. Like for the past five years, they've just released Skyrim to new devices. It's becoming a meme at this point, right? (laughs) Well, it's been a meme for a while, actually.
0: It's a really enjoyable game, so...
1: It is an enjoyable game, but it's also... It's an old game. (laughs) Yeah, it's really old. Like, it's time maybe to release a new game. That's not a scam like uh, Fallout 76.
0: Mm. So, uh, yeah, you, you've
1: been ill for a while. I've been ill. I've, yeah. had, um, I've had the coronavirus. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. No, I just had flu for quite a long while. But yeah. the upside of that is I've seen a lot of movies, mm. and that's been been great.
0: Yeah, that's the useful part of being ill.
1: Yeah, and I've also watched a lot of garbage TV <laughs> There's this show called Naked and Afraid.
0: Oh <laughs> my God, what's and that? And
1: it's this incredible, like it's super trashy TV. Okay. It's, um, I think it's Discovery Channel. I, 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 it was one of those sort of, uh, that used to be documentaries and stuff. Yeah. Now it's just fucking trash reality TV.
0: It's a kind of lifestyle program. Yeah, and the <laughs>
1: concept of the show is so stupid. Like they send these survivalists out to these incredibly inhospitable places around the world. And they stripped them of all their clothes. So they're naked <laughs> and they have to survive for like three weeks. Was oh, it like
0: a remote island or?
1: Yeah. And uh, they have this camera crew filming them, but they can't interact or like do yeah. anything for them. <laughs> uh, and they just have to survive. And it's so like, oh, God, like it's, it's cut and edited like a traditional reality show, so huh. it's super stupid. Like huh. uh, interjected with the interviews, them talking about what their experiences stuff. But these people are just so fucking like the types of people that join this program. Is they're so funny. Some of them, like most of them, are just really weird. Yeah, like um, there's this one episode with this dude named Puma. <laughs> He calls himself Puma. He has, like, a lot of tribal tattoos mm. and, like, long hair. Mm. And uh, he looks like uh, like a typical island person. Super into, like, probably yoga and all sorts of alternative medicine and stuff. Mm. And he's paired up with this really tall woman. Mm. And they sort of have to fend for themselves in, like, the jungles of Panama or something.
0: And they're, they're, naked the time, or? they're naked all the time? They're
1: naked all the time. They're naked. They're not na- allowed to find clothes? They're naked and afraid. No, you can make clothes and stuff if you can't find the stuff yeah. to do it, but some people do and some people don't. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's so stupid. And uh, in, in this one episode with Puma, he like uh, they're getting so thirsty because they can't find water. And you can't just drink still water, right? Or water from anywhere because it can contain bacteria and stuff that will poison you or make you sick. But at some point, they're just so thirsty and he, he like steals off. So she doesn't know. And he goes to like drink this river water and he's like... Oh. So that really hit the spot, and then he gets like this disease, and it goes into this fever, like dreaming. <laughs> and It's like it's so sick in this, like rambling in the middle of the night with like wild boars running around, and then it gets so bad that uh, they have to like airlift him out or wherever and take him to a hospital. <laughs> it's so, unlike every episode, they they are so. Like, everything's so unpleasant. They're, like, (laughs) huddled in, like, fetal position on the ground in this jungle and just crying. It's just, it's so trashy and so good watching. (laughs) I love it. That's the regular show. But Mm. then you have these new and improved versions of it, which is, like, Naked and Afraid XL Superstars. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Where you take, like, the fan favorites from the earlier uh, shows and you put them together in these, like, groups. Mm. And now they have to survive for, like, 4 weeks or something like even longer. In the original show it's like 21 days, which yeah. is the longest the human body can go without food. Yeah. So you can sort of like hunker down and just be miserable for 3 weeks. But in the in the XL version, they you can't do that. You have yeah. to find food sources mm-hmm. and stuff. So it's even more funny. And then you have like the interpersonal drama between these insane fucking survivalists and it's just fucking
0: hilarious. But is there like a, a prize that the last winner gets a money prize or something? Nope. Like, nope, it's all for just like on fame and glory. It's yeah. so stupid because these programs used to have that kind of. They used to be about like somebody coming out and and getting an award for.
1: No, but like these are these are the kinds of people that do this to sort of feel good about their prowess as survivalists yeah. or whatever. And like the spectrum of people doing this is stupid. Like some of them seem like legit survivalists. Yeah. Others are just fucking idiots. Yeah. <laughs> Like, there's this one guy, uh, this island episode, and and this one guy, like, on day one, he gets so sunburned. He can't move for, like, half the rest of the time they were there. He's just in pain, lying, like, under this palm all, all the time. Just,
0: ah, oh, it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> it's so stupid. Uh,
1: I love it. And then, like, you have the interspersed cuts with, like, you're watching Naked and Afraid. And then there's these commercials for you mm. and stuff, and it's just... These quick edits of people being miserable, Mm. truly miserable in these horrible places, like insects biting them and like predators stalking them. (laughs) And it's like raining and like, it's so funny. I think you really like it. Oh,
0: that sounds uh...
1: like I I enjoy bad TV, but this Mm. is like some next level shit
0: of bad. funny yeah i'm I'm surprised that's allowed to exist yeah
1: there's also like this incredibly stupid thing where it's like they're trying to gamify it in a way where Mm. they give the contestants like stats Mm. and they're like our experts has decided their survival expert rating or a S-E-R or whatever, something like that. And then they get like points and there's like this stat screen where you see the points that like, yeah. go up and down regarding uh, their performance and stuff. And then once they're finished or uh, if they can not finish or whatever, they're like reassess their points. And it's never quite explicit who these experts are or what the metrics are. It's just really stupid.
0: That's a really bad tendency, you know, gamifying things. Yeah. Typically, that's a bad sign. Yeah, there's
1: nothing really good about this show except it's funny. Mm. It's funny to laugh at these people. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them are really good survivalists. Mm. So, it, like, sometimes when they solve problems in good ways,
0: it's interesting to watch. But mostly
1: it's just funny because... But do
0: they, like, craft tools and build Yeah, they, build they craft huts. tools
1: and fish and hunt and stuff. And sometimes they do it really badly. But mostly it's funny because when you put these sort of weird people in these mm. sort of extreme situations mm. and they're naked and everything's miserable, it just it makes for funny TV. Mm.
0: Yeah, oh, well, i never heard of it, but it's been going for a while.
1: Yeah, there's like nine or ten seasons mm. of it. It's stupid.
0: Concerning nine or ten seasons, I've actually been watching Curb Your Enthusiasm a lot lately. Yeah, initially Larry David. I, uh, yeah, initially I watched maybe five seasons or something way back. Then I kind of dropped off and then I, I picked it up again now because they have the new season and uh, really enjoying it. I, I like the bite-sized episodes and some of them are written really well. I don't know if you heard about this, there was a a recent episode from one of the new seasons where he's in a situation where he has to meet a person that he doesn't really like. But he's kind of forced into, you know, having a lunch date with this guy. So he's looking for a way out and then he discovers kind of the magic power of a MAGA hat. Make America Great Again. (laughs) So he shows up wearing that Marga hat and he sits there and as the other guy arrives and he just kind of panics a bit and he makes this really bad excuse about his son coming to the airport and just (laughs) leaves. And he, Larry David, just loves this perfect social repellent. Yeah. And he does like different scene when he's using this as a way of, you know, controlling situations.
1: And then it inevitably backfires. Uh,
0: well, Well, there's one scene that's kind of gone viral because um, he's driving in a car and he sort of swivels a bit towards a motorcyclist and this big heavy guy with a beard. And right. A tough guy. And he becomes really aggressive. And he says, hey, yo, what the fuck are you doing? Hey, la, la, la. And he orders him to like, roll down his window. And so he does, but he takes the hat and puts it on his head and he turns around and looks at him, hey, what? And then the guy likes, oh, yeah, you know, never mind. Just be a bit more careful next time. And, he <laughs> <off>. <laughs> oh, that's, and that's really funny. And what's even more funny is that the American president tweeted this yeah. as if it was embracing him, yeah. not understanding like the context of ridicule. So that it reached a new level of humor and absurdity.
1: Yeah, it sort sure of goes to show uh, the lack of self-awareness that dude has. Yeah. I like career enthusiasm. I haven't watched, like, complete seasons of it. No. I have watched episodes here and there. Yep. Our David is just, he has a great comedic timing, I think. Yeah, really. And yeah. some
0: of them are written so well. They're like, the way they kind of, one thing leads to another. Yeah,
1: but, it, like, it's a lot of the same shit that mm. was really good about Seinfeld. Yeah. Just the absurd situations and mm. sort of social awkwardness the Um,
0: mundane absurdity yeah
1: yeah, yeah. just sort of the basis for a lot of good comedy is sort of the the mundane Mm. sort of small observations about how fucking weird people are Mm. but it does a lot of things well that I think a lot of other comedies don't manage to do as well Mm. because I I, I'm not really a huge fan of the, the, the sort of awkward comedy no the sort of office style where people are oh look how awkward i am mm. or look at this awkward situation because often it's just that yeah it but, needs to have some other elements yeah I, well, think I think larry david often f- frames it in a funnier way yeah. so how many seasons does there? i have- mean it's
0: 10 now this is it's the 10th they're working oh, on damn. Now. but because well, they've had these big breaks there, was, yeah, there yeah. was a long break for a few years ago and then i made a season or two and then there was a longer break and yeah so there's a new one now well, that's nice. I'd, it's I'd it's never good to re- have
1: like some quality comedy shows to binge if you're feeling up for that shit. Like uh, It's Always Sunny or... Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, because yeah, that's also quite a few oh, seasons. Oh, it's so fucking funny. Yeah. Really funny, yeah. The nice thing about that as well, at least for me, is that I can watch it while I'm kind of working in my studio as well, making some sculptures or art or stuff and stuff. Yeah, having some, it in the sometimes it's
1: nice to have some TV or some mm. shows you can watch that doesn't require you to actively pay attention mm. all the time. That's sort of also a bit of the appeal of trashy TV to me that I mm. don't really... its You can relax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You,
0: you don't have to be attentive. You
1: just let the garbage wash over you.
0: sounds <laughs> <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> horrible.
1: <laughs> yeah, it sounds horrible, but actually it's great. And I, that's why I like unpleasant
0: movies. Yeah, yeah, I do like unpleasant movies, but I do have a, I have a low tolerance for a lot of television. I often get really annoyed and What, and you don't angry. like the telly? There's so many aspects. I mean, there's a lot of good, you know programming and shows lots of wonderful things made for television but actually owning a television and watching tv is something i often feel very frustrated by
1: well tv is horrible because of the ads yeah i literally can't watch ads now i've become too used to a life without ads and when you live too long without ads you realize just how fucking psychotic that shit is Yeah, yeah
0: it's so intrusive
1: it takes real estate in your mind yeah. that is really kind of assaulting. It's really, you know ugly. what I mean?
0: It's disgusting, yeah. and I, I hate it.
1: And because of the lack of money now in TV, the, the ads are just worse and worse. Mm.
0: But then you know they're all, all over the place. Like even YouTube is kind of infested. You have to have all these ad blockers to even watch something without having like five minutes of intrusive yeah, shit. Yeah. That really bothers me. Yeah,
1: fuck ads. But I think um, that's enough uh, for today. So we'll see you the next episode. Yeah. And until then, uh, don't watch any ads.
0: Yeah. If you want to get in touch with us, you can at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com. The music for this episode was composed by Jorskaning and Sverre Ogor, the band Umulium. And uh, yeah, we'll um, talk at you some other time. Yes,
1: we'll talk at you, down at you some <laughs> other time. So we'll see you next time.
0: Bye-bye. Adieu.